Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. While a distinguished legal career, the pinnacle of which was reached between 2017 and 2021 when he served as the Chief Justice, Frank Clark surprised many when he resumed work as a barrister, becoming one of the few senior judges to return to practice. Frank joins us now to discuss his illustrious career and to share his opinions on opportunities for the advancement of the Irish legal system. Frank, I'd like to start the interview by getting an insight into some of the highlights of your own legal career. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. I suppose, in one sense, becoming Chief Justice must be the highlight of anyone's legal career. It's the the highest office one could aspire to in the country. It gives you the opportunity, perhaps, to change things in a way you think they need to be changed. And that would have to be the highlight. But also, you know, I I spent many years as a barrister and I was lucky enough to be involved in in some of the bigger cases in, in recent Irish history. And in one sense, perhaps the case that gave me my initial break as a very young junior counsel when I was involved in the case called Healy and Donoghue, which established the right to legal aid in criminal cases back in the early mid 1970s. Uh, to be involved in a case of that size uh, at a very young age in my sort of early mid 20s was was a remarkable um, event from my point of view and, and I suppose has remained a great highlight. And Frank, more generally, how has the legal system changed over the duration of your own career? It's something that I suppose when you get to a certain age you begin to think about, particularly around the time of my retirement as Chief Justice. I suppose I could comment on a few things that are the the biggest changes from my perspective. Firstly, the whole scale of the court system is radically different to what it was in 1973 when I qualified at the bar. Uh, At that time, there was less than 10 high court judges, uh, five Supreme Court judges, no court of appeal. Now in those higher courts, there's 45 or six high court judges, an extra court, the Court of Appeal, with 17 judges and nine on the Supreme Court. So that's a a huge increase in in the number of judges. And those judges are now very busy, and many would think there aren't enough of them. And yet there was enough with that much smaller number 50 years ago. So that's been a huge change. And one might ask, why has that been? So a small part of it is we're a bigger country. There's five million of us now. There were only three then. But I think more importantly, life is more complex. Legal issues are more complex. The law itself is more complex. Uh, uh, There are more cases by a very significant margin. And those cases themselves often take longer because they are more complicated. So I think there are a range of factors. And indeed, perhaps we haven't changed our civil civil uh, litigation system very much over the years, hence the recent report on um, civil justice reform uh, under the chairmanship of uh, former president of the High Court, Peter Kelly, uh, whose implementation has now started. Uh, and I'd like to think that will be another part of the solution to the problem in that it, it ought to simplify uh, the process of people being able to go to court and that in turn will reduce costs. And Frank, how would you describe Irish people's appetite for litigation? I think it's um, it's quite a healthy appetite. Uh, you know, I think we do go to court quite a lot. It's very hard to be able to compare exactly one country with another because systems differ and how uh, disputes get resolved differ. But we seem to 
be, I suppose, in the upper range of countries where the citizens are, are uh, interested in exercising their rights through the courts. And of course, if you have an effective legal system where people can challenge decisions of government or state agencies or the like, um, that's a good thing, I think, from most perspectives. Uh, and the fact that people are frequently successful in persuading the courts that certain decisions that have been made are, are, are not legally correct, um, then I think that's a, that's a very uh, healthy part of any democratic society. We've also seen a transition to the use of technology being used by a court system as a result of the pandemic. Do you think that that's here to stay? I think parts of it are. Um, I've often described it as a, as a forced experiment. You know, if we didn't have the pandemic, uh, there would have been a working group and many committees and it would have taken five years to think about it and some people would have been for it and some people would have been against it. But we just had to do it because of the pandemic, because the alternative in most cases would have been that there would have been no hearings of certain types and that just wasn't wasn't possible. So we kind of had to do the best we had with the tools that were available. Um, and I think that allowed us to learn a lot about what worked and what didn't work. And I think certainly many elements uh, of what had to be introduced during the pandemic will, will stay with us. Not all. I think cases where there are significant differences in evidence requiring an assessment of where the truth lies are, are, are cases where most judges would feel they have a better opportunity where the, the witnesses are live in the courtroom. I, I don't think we've fully learned all the lessons yet, but I think we have learned a lot that will allow us to get a, a proper balance in the future between the things that can be done every bit as well uh, remotely um, and much more efficiently, and those things where there really is added value in getting everyone in the same room. Uh, and maybe we won't get that balance always exactly right, but I think I think we have a much greater ability because of our experience during the pandemic to be able to get it right. And at a human level, Frank, do you miss the hustle and bustle of the courtroom? Sometimes. I suppose in a way, it was really when I was a high court judge and indeed prior to that as a barrister that, that, that you really experienced that. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've been on the Supreme Court, which is, I suppose, a slightly more refined atmosphere. You know, there's no witnesses. It's purely legal argument. Um, but I but I do sometimes. Um, but, you know, th there is a sense of being there, done that as well. Um, you know, I did that for a long time and I enjoyed doing it. But in life, I've always been a believer in the fact that... You know, there's a time and place for everything and maybe you need to move on from things as well, even though you enjoyed them very much. And as one of the few judges that have returned to practice, you've recently resumed work as a barrister and are specialising in the areas of arbitration and mediation. Why did you decide to go back? Firstly, I felt I still had things to do. I liked the law. I loved my career in the law. I didn't particularly want it to end. Uh, I would have been happy enough to stay on as a judge if there wasn't a retirement age. Um, you're not, it's not permitted, certainly if, you're, uh, if you decide to be, remain a member of the law library to, as a former judge to appear in court. So mediation and arbitration were the, the obvious areas uh, that one might concentrate on. And I felt my experience both previously as a barrister and more recently as a judge m might allow me to, to be able to do those jobs in a reasonably effective way.
Now, on the topic of alternative dispute resolution, what's driving the demand for this and how does it actually work? Well, I think there's different types of it uh, and it is important to distinguish between the different types of ADR. Um, Arbitration is really, I suppose, almost like a private court case. Uh, An arbitrator is appointed either by agreement between the parties or because the parties have agreed in a contract some mechanism such as a particular professional body or institute uh, has the right to nominate the arbitrator if, if the parties can't agree. And the arbitrator conducts a full hearing, not necessarily identical to the way it would be done in court, but often not that different, and comes up with a binding result. So that if you agree to arbitration and the arbitrator decides you win or lose, or you win a bit but not as much as you liked, then that's binding on you, just as if that case had gone to a court and the judge had made a binding decision. And we have laws in Ireland that, based on the relevant United Nations model, the UNCTRAL model, which give a very high value to the result of an arbitration, an arbitral award, and which make it very difficult to challenge that in the courts. possible in certain limited circumstances, but not very often. And therefore, if parties choose that route, they're really choosing a binding way of resolving their dispute, where the result would be the same as if it was in a court, but it's done privately and they perhaps have a bit more control over the process and the timing and the like. They don't have to wait for their slot in in, in court time. But it's probably no cheaper, to be honest, than, than going to court. It might be quicker depending on all the circumstances, though not necessarily in the commercial field where our commercial court is quite efficient. Um, so that's arbitration. Mediation, which has perhaps been growing in, in recent years, is, is however different. Mediation is about a a neutral person, as it were, the mediator acting as a facilitator to see if an agreement can be reached. Uh, And the mediator has no role in imposing a result, though can obviously suggest ways in which things can be done. Uh, And clearly, depending on the stage of the process that that's engaged in, it may save an awful lot of money. If the matter can be resolved at an early stage, then all of the costs of going to court are saved. And I often say, particularly in the commercial field, it's not just the financial cost of paying lawyers and other experts, but it's also perhaps the cost to the business. Um, If it's senior personnel have to spend a lot of their mental energy and time dealing with litigation for a few years when they really ought to be going about the business of what they're meant to be good at, which is running whatever type of business they're involved in. In some cases, uh, it may be that things that aren't actually involved in the dispute itself can be brought to the table um, that may not cost one side very much, but may be of considerable advantage to the other, Uh, something a court could never do. The court can only decide the legal rights and wrongs, uh, but the parties can agree other things, and the mediator may be able to suggest, well, if you were to agree to that, I know a court couldn't make you do that, but if you agreed to do it, then that would be of some use to them, and it won't cost you very much, and putting that into the pot can encourage a settlement. And whilst alternative dispute resolution is still at its infancy in Ireland, how effective has it been internationally? I think it's used a lot in international disputes as well, um, because for for much the same reason, and perhaps there's the added advantage, both in 
arbitration and in mediation that you get rid of sort of cross-border problems uh, and it makes it easier to resolve uh, international disputes. It, it is a growing area. I, I think it will continue to grow um, and um, I suspect it's going to become a significant part of the Irish legal landscape and the international legal landscape uh, over the coming years. And from your experience of ruling on commercial cases in the High Court, how would businesses have avoided becoming embroiled in these disputes? Well, uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I've often felt that when contracts are being entered into, and, and most business disputes, not all, but many uh, are based on a contract that's gone wrong for some reason. So I think putting care into your contractual arrangements in advance is perhaps the single biggest thing people can do in advance to minimize the risk of difficulties. It doesn't make make the situation immune from challenge because unexpected things can happen and there can be disputes about whose fault it was and there isn't much you can do to avoid that. But then perhaps just to go back to the last thing we were discussing, maybe when things begin to go off the rails, there might be a significant advantage in people resorting to some form of alternative dispute resolution at an early stage, which would mean they wouldn't have to go to court uh, in the first place, even though there was a problem that needed to be resolved. And as a result of Brexit, you see opportunities for Ireland to become a destination for international litigation. I do. This is something that perhaps lawyers know and vaguely might be within the purview of, of the general public. But we have a legal system called the common law system, which is similar to that in countries which I suppose got their legal system from the United Kingdom. But with the UK gone, we're now, uh, I suppose, the only fully common law country within the EU. And in my experience, international players, corporations and whatever, do like if they become involved in litigation. And I suppose many would like to avoid it, but in certain kinds of businesses, it's almost an inevitable consequence. And they like to have their litigation conducted in a legal system with which they are reasonably familiar. So what happens of a Tuesday in an Irish court hearing is not that different than what would happen in a similar uh, dispute being tried in most of the US, in Canada or, or in Australia. And therefore, we have that added advantage that, that if you bring your case in Ireland, uh, you are con- that case would be conducted, if you come from another common law country, through a system with which you're familiar. And London had built quite a significant business by being just that, by being the big common law country within the EU. Because there are various rules within EU law that allows the orders made by a particular court to have force right across the European Union and therefore it's an advantage if you want your orders to be relevant in international disputes across the range of EU countries to have the case tried within the EU. It's not vital in all cases but it's sometimes a help and therefore there are cases which say an American corporation might want to bring where it would be to their advantage to have it within the EU and where they might also prefer it to be conducted through a common law system. And I suppose if that's what you want, uh, we're well placed to exploit that. Conscious of the current delays in our court system, do we currently have the capacity to manage that work? 
we have the capacity to manage some more work. I would accept there's a limit to how much we could probably take on. Um, the commercial court is still a very efficient court. It still conducts its business very quickly. It would be well up to the highest international standards in terms of the time it takes. And we have very experienced and very skilled commercial judges in the Irish High Court. And I think it would be fair to say we've had some very exceptional recent appointments to the court that have added to that strength. So I think we do have the personnel. And I'm sure if the I think it's important to Ireland Inc, as it were, um, the government and various other interested parties have established a, a programme called Ireland for Law, which is designed to encourage that very process. So I think there's government backing. And if it did become clear that some additional judicial appointments and other resources were necessary to accommodate uh, that type of litigation, I think they would be forthcoming. There's obviously some limit on what a country of our size could manage. We probably I doubt if we're ever going to get all the work from London because London has its own attractions and a small bit of what London has coming to Ireland would be useful from our point of view. And I think we could handle that sort of a realistic amount of of the cases that may, for one reason or another, not want to be tried in London anymore, but may want to stay within the common law world and within the European Union. And Frank, finally, if any of our listeners are considering a career in law, what advice have you got for them? Well, if you think you'd like it, uh, I think you have to go for it, uh, is the first advice I'd give. I think it would also be important to take advice on what it really means to be a practising lawyer. I think the outside view of it is often a little bit different from what it is really in practice. You know, um, people may have looked at too many uh, US uh, movies uh, uh, and TV series and they may have a wrong impression <laughs> of what it's all about. Um, uh, you know, a, a lot of it, for example, in Ireland is about transactions. We have perhaps the greatest legal expertise in the world in things like aeroplane leasing because an awful lot of the world's aeroplanes, as we found out to our cost a bit in, in the context of recent events, uh, are, are owned by companies in the Irish Financial Services Centre and are leased out. So I think maybe learn what it would really be like and decide, is that what you'd want? But then pursue it and pursue it vigorously. And I think it now, maybe we talked near the beginning about changes, one of the biggest changes is that there's so many different ways of practicing law nowadays. So one of those may suit you. You know, it could be very uh, important work for an NGO in various fields. It could be working for government. It could be working in business as an in-house counsel for companies. Uh, there are many, many more ways of practicing law beyond the traditional practice of being a barrister or a solicitor. And therefore, perhaps explore all of those too and see, okay, if if it didn't suit me ultimately to be in traditional practice, is there somewhere useful I can use my law qualification that will allow me to do a job I'd really like to do, and which I would feel was both challenging and rewarding, um, uh, but, but it's something that I could realistically hope to be able to do. Well, former Chief Justice Frank Clark, it was a great privilege to have you as a guest on Business Matters. Many thanks for a fascinating interview and we wish you every continued success as a barrister.
Thank you very much. Delighted to have been able to talk to you this morning. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.